Please go ahead and open in your Bibles to Psalm 50. You can find that in the Bibles provided on pages 473 and 474. I'm guessing on a a week like this where we're about to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday, many of us might feel like we should be more thankful. Might be feeling the pressure not to just let this holiday go by as another feast or another time to watch football or another time to get some good deals on a big TV, but you feel like I should really be doing more to, to be thankful and to not just sort of, um, you know, use this holiday in a superficial way. I, I think we often hear a, a, a need for thankfulness um, kind of proclaimed as a, as a kind of life hack. You know, if you want to be a happier, more well-adjusted person, just spend a few minutes a day thanking God for the blessings you have. Or, or, you know, if it's not in a a God context, it's just being thankful to the the ether for for the things in your life. It's presented in kind of a way, just, this will just make your life a little better. And I, I think sometimes our approach even to a holiday like Thanksgiving might be the same. It'll just make the holiday a little more meaningful. We can have a little more connection if we, if we spend some time giving thanks. And there might be some good to that. You might spend some time thinking about how the Lord's blessed you over the last year, about your, your family or, or good things that happened in your job or that he preserved you through that illness. Those can be good things to do. But I wonder if in approaching Thanksgiving that way, we've kind of lowered the stakes too much. We have kind of accepted that Thanksgiving is just a little extra salt to sprinkle on my life. It it really is more peripheral, something good to have, but, you know, on the whole, maybe not that important. And so the way we approach Thanksgiving or trying to grow in Thanksgiving tends to be in this kind of life hacky sort of way. I want to submit to you this morning that, that the scriptures are offering us in Psalm 50 a perhaps counterintuitive way to approach growing in thanksgiving. And that counterintuitive way is to present to us God as a righteous judge. Do you often associate God the judge with thanksgiving? The idea that the God who is the mighty one in the universe, the one, the creator, the glorious one, that he would approach you and confront you in your sin and think, yeah, that's a big Thanksgiving theme, <laughs> right? That's not something we typically do, right? That's something that we, we might think of for a moment in terror and then run away from, right? <clears throat> we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on God's judgment, nor do we think that it has anything to do with Thanksgiving. But Psalm 50 does that for us. Today, in the next few Sundays, we're going to be looking at a a selection of psalms. Uh, This is a good way to kind of get into the psalms. Psalms kind of stand alone, so you can just do a few of them at a time. And it also kind of provides some some buffer between the previous sermon series and the next one, which I hope, Lord willing, will be on Luke. But I chose this psalm this morning because it's Thanksgiving week, and it has this counterintuitive, surprising approach to the idea of Thanksgiving. This psalm should force us this morning to examine, do I really understand what true thanksgiving is? Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about the holiday right now, although maybe this will help you approach the holiday. What I mean is, 
Do I understand that thanksgiving is essential to the true worship of God? Am I convicted that without thanksgiving in my heart, there is no true worship of God? Do I confess that the person with a fundamentally ungrateful heart is a person under God's judgment? We're going to look at all of that this morning in this psalm. We're going to divide the psalm up into three parts. So first in verses 1 through 6, we'll see the heavenly judge summons his people. Then in verses 7 through 15, we'll see the judge's charges against the pious. And in 16 through 23, his charges against the hypocrites. So the first section is the heavenly judge summons his people and he brings charges against the pious and charges against the hypocrites. Let's read verses 1 through 7, um, yeah, 1 through 6 of this psalm and see how the Lord, the heavenly judge, comes into his courtroom. Listen to God's word from Psalm 50, beginning in verse 1. A psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. In our law courts, we recognize the dignity and the authority of judges. I haven't been in many courtrooms, but at least on TV, all the courtroom members rise when the judge enters, right? And We have particular ways that we address the judge. We call the judge your honor and the lawyers say, if it pleases the court, maybe do this or that. The judge has authority over the courtroom. If someone's causing a ruckus, the judge can throw them out. Or if if a lawyer or defendant or someone does something wrong, he can can hold them in contempt and can can bring fines in, in jail time. So we recognize that a judge has authority. And I want to submit that this kind of authority and dignity that we attach to earthly judges is a a shadowy picture of the kind of authority that God has, which is presented for us in these opening verses of the psalm. So in these opening words, we're witnessing God, the heavenly judge, come out of his chambers and enter into his cosmic courtroom. He's introduced in this opening line with the proclamation of his name or his names, the mighty one, God, the Lord. And it's immediately clear in the second line that he has jurisdiction over the whole earth from the rising of the sun to the setting. So every place and every person who sees the sun, they are under God's authority. He has jurisdiction over them. So he emerges from his chambers and he speaks. He summons the whole earth. Now the image may seem frightening and in some ways it is. But God is also pictured here as pure goodness. 
So verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God is a light that shines. It's unclear whether perfection of beauty is meant to describe Zion or God, but it's probably both. It's probably kind of ambiguous because the place where God dwells, Zion, takes on the character of God. So God is presented here as the perfection of beauty. And the point here is to show that God, the majestic heavenly judge, the God who has this great rule to summon the earth when he wants, he is goodness itself. He is the perfection of beauty. And here he is coming out of his chambers, shining majestically over all the earth, over all mankind, over every beast as we'll see. I think we're meant to see that the the light of God is more pure and more powerful than the light of the sun that he mentioned in verse 1. Here we have the greater, more perfect light shining forth. Now again, think of that human courtroom scene. Think about the judge, you know, opening that back door from the chambers and entering the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise. But now in this case, imagine it's not a a black-robed man or woman that comes out. But just through a crack in the door, we see a, a blinding light appear. The perfection of beauty. And the second you see that blinding light, you hear the voice of the judge summoning you. And you immediately know that you are subject to this judge. You immediately know, like Isaiah knew, how unworthy and weak you are in the presence of this judge, this light shining forth. That's the picture here. The pure and holy God emerging from his heavenly sanctuary and calling out his summons. Is that the God that you know? These verses should stop us in our tracks. Are you giving God the attention he deserves as the perfection of beauty, as the judge of all the earth who summons all at his command? Now, it's not until verses 3 through 6 that it becomes clear that God is emerging here as a judge. These first two verses could be more God the king coming and and God is king. But verse 3 provides imagery of a, a cataclysmic judgment, right? We see God as a a devouring fire and a, and a tempest. These are images of, of cataclysmic judgment. And then in verse 4, we get the word judge. It says, He, God, calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So it's clear, God is coming in judgment. This summons that he's issued is a summons to be judged. And he calls on heaven and earth as his witnesses and and also kind of his bailiffs, right? He says to them to gather up his people. Heaven and earth are to gather those summoned to God's courtroom. The surprise, though, is that who God is summoning. Up until the end of verse 4, we might think this is is maybe a picture of the end times universal judgment, when all all the earth will come to God and, and be judged. But the last two words of verse 4 tell us that God has come here to judge his people. And then he gets more specific in verse 5. The faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So this psalm is about the Lord coming to judge Israel. 
his people. In the words of 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, here in Psalm 50. It's notable that he, he describes his people as those who have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. This is important because sacrifice plays a big role in this psalm. We're going to see these two groups of people we've identified, the pious and the hypocrites. They both have something to say about sacrifices and covenants. And the question is, do they get it right? And so to start off here, the Lord explains a proper understanding of sacrifice. This is how John Calvin put it in his commentary on this psalm. He said, The design with which sacrifices were instituted by God was to bind his people more closely to himself and to ratify and confirm his covenant. What I want you to understand there is that sacrifices were for the sake of covenant. By covenant, I mean the saving love that God poured out on his people and the people's knowledge and worship of God. That's the covenant relationship. And so the sacrifices that God instituted in the old covenant were meant to drive the people to that relationship. The sacrifices were meant to serve the covenantal relationship that Israel had with God and that God had with Israel. And what this means is the sacrifices were never an end in themselves. The sacrifices were not just something that Israel was just to do and do and do without any thought to what they meant. The sacrifices were to lead them into the covenant relationship with God. The sacrifices made a way for them to know God and to enjoy the blessings of his covenant. So the sacrifices were for the sake of covenant. <clears throat> and so this scene is this. God has called Israel, the people who have entered into this covenant with him by sacrifice, He's called them to come into his courtroom and be judged. And before we leave this kind of scene setting, God makes one final statement in verse 6. He reminds them that he is righteous. He says that the heavens declare the righteousness of God. Again, the heavens are functioning like witnesses here. God's witness to his righteousness is not any man or any king. It's the heavens. In a sense, it's God himself. God is a witness to his own righteousness. He doesn't need anyone else to vouch for him. And so Israel here are kind of being told the ground rules. You have no cause to complain that this is an unfair trial. The heavens declare, I am righteous and I'm about to judge you. Well, this could be something that we struggle with, isn't it? We, we accuse God of treating us unfairly. A lot of times our, our anger is kind of is explicitly anger or implicitly anger at God. And its, it's subtext is, God, I don't deserve this. So if, if that's you, if you ever see yourself as accusing God, of saying, God, you are unfair, you are unjust, I would encourage you to spend some time with Psalm 50, verse 6, and allow this verse the heavens declare the righteousness of God. Allow this verse to instruct your conscience, to correct you, that God is never unfair. He is perfectly righteous in all his judgments. So that's the scene. Here Israel stands, and they stand where we will all one day stand. They stand before the perfection of beauty. 
They stand before the God who dwells in unapproachable light, as Paul says in Timothy. They stand before the heavenly righteous judge. He's come forth from his heavenly throne room to judge them. That's the setting for the psalm. The heavenly judge has come forth, he summoned his people, and now we're ready for the trial to begin. So let's look at verses 7 and following. We kind of hear God's opening statement and the charges he brings, the charges against the pious of Israel. Listen to God's word beginning in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So God begins these charges with the words, Hear, O Israel, which reminds us of, of what he says in Deuteronomy 6, this great uh, expression of God's covenant name to his people. So he begins with these poignant words, calling them to pay attention, but then he starts by telling them what he's not charging them for. Right? He's clear that it's a rebuke, but it's not a rebuke for their sacrifices. And this is a little bit puzzling. We're not quite sure how to take it. As he's saying, um, there's two ways really to take it. He could be saying, your sacrifices are fine. You're keeping all the outward rules of sacrifice. And so I'm not here to talk about that. Or he may be saying, you're doing a lot of sacrificing, but you're getting it wrong. I tend to take that second view because of what verse 9 says. I will not accept bulls from your house or goats from your fold. I think it's God saying, I'm not here to rebuke you for failing to make sacrifices or failing to make them in the right way because I wouldn't accept them even if you offered them. But whatever the case, God clearly wants to get beyond the outward sacrifices and get to the heart of the matter. He's saying, I'm not here to get more sacrifices from you. I'm here to talk about something more important. So what's that more important thing? Well, Israel's problem here is that they have fundamentally gotten their relationship with God wrong. They imagine God as needing something from them. They imagine themselves giving something to God. Instead of understanding that the sacrifices are a way for them to know the forgiveness of God and the love of God, they've begun to think that somehow maybe they're adding something to God or even that they are feeding God with the bulls and goats that they offer. And that's what all these questions amount to at the end of the passage we just read. It seems that they think that they are buying God off, that their sacrifices are kind of a transaction where they pay God by way of sacrifice and then God is satisfied and then they get peace and prosperity because of how they've they've made this payment to God. How does that way of thinking about God strike you? When we put it in terms of ancient Israel's sacrifices, I think it seems pretty obviously wrong and silly, you know, that they could, they could give God anything or, or pay God off. But aren't we sometimes tempted to treat our 
righteousness like that? Are we tempted to sort of think that we are giving something to God and God will receive it and in return give us something that we want? So that we, have a, we kind of make a bargain with God. That we've struck a deal where we do some good things for him. We do him some favors and then he'll do us some favors. You ever think of your, your financial giving to the church like that? I've given something to God. Now I can be sure God will take care of me. Think of your Bible reading like that. I did my Bible reading this morning, so I can expect to get a good day back in return for that payment I made to God. He got what he wanted, and now I get what I wanted. Are we tempted to think like that? That God gives us favors in return for the favors that we do him. Psalm 50 is all about blowing those ideas out of the water. God says there's no transactions between me and you. There's no deals. And here's why. Because God needs nothing. He owns everything. Right? We see this comparison between what people have and what God has. So beginning in verse 9, he refers to their folds and their houses. They've got stuff. Right? They've got some stuff in their house. They've got some sheep in their folds. Right? But look at what God has. Right? God says, Every beast of the forest is mine, in verse 10. The cattle on a thousand hills. And then he says, I know all the birds of the hills. That even another word, there's four different words for landscape stuff here. Fields and hills and hill country. And then he says, as kind of a general overview, all that moves in the fields is mine. It's a, just a universal claim. There's nothing that has breath that doesn't belong to me. There's no inch of land, no matter how you describe it, that I don't own. So what are you going to give me from your little houses and your little folds? Everything in every place belongs to God. Not only does God say he owns them, but he says he knows them. I know all the birds of the air, right? And Jesus builds on that later in the passage that John read for us, right? He knows every sparrow that falls from the sky. He knows them. He knows us. He knows all things. So a God who made everything and owns everything and knows everything doesn't need a thing from his creatures, the idea that we could give anything to God is just impossible. It just doesn't follow because God owns all that we have, right? Everything we have comes from him. Well, that should change the way we think about our, our stuff and our money, right? It's all God's. What do we have that we didn't receive from his hand? So the Lord says, everything is mine. There's no way for you to give anything. But then he even goes further. The Lord says in verse 12 that if we could imagine some hypothetical world in which God were hungry or thirsty, he says, I wouldn't tell you about it. You humans are the last place I would turn to get my needs met if I had any. Right? God does not take us into his counsel in that way. He, has, he doesn't have the, those needs. And he makes that clear with this rhetorical question in verse 13. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? It's a ridiculous thing to say. The answer is a resounding no. God doesn't eat or drink. Remember again how the psalm opened up. He's the mighty God. 
the Lord. He is the perfection of beauty. He is light. As Jesus would later say in John 4, God is a spirit. And also in John, that God has life in himself. You and me, we don't have life in ourselves. We have life because God breathed in life to us. And to, to keep that life going, we do have to eat and drink and breathe, right? God does not need any sustenance for his life. His life is self-existent. He is not dependent. And he's the only being that exists like that. There is only one perfectly independent one, and it is God. The point of all this is to show us what true worship is not. True worship of God does not add anything to God. So if we imagine that in our faith or in our obedience or in our showing up to a church service that we are you know, giving something to God or paying off some debt to God, we've completely missed the point of what it means to know and worship God. God makes no bargains with us. He does not need us. He doesn't want anything from us in the sense of that he would be insufficient without it. Now, this may make us wonder, well, if that's the kind of God that God is, is there, is there any way we can get to him? Is there this inapproachable gulf? Like, we, we feel like we want to be needed, and if we're not needed, do we matter at all to God? Well, here's where the good news of the gospel comes in. God does not need people, but he has chosen to love people and to save them. In this light, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Here's where we get a command in the text, beginning in verse 14. Offer, that's a command, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So what do we offer to God? What vows do we pay him? He calls it a sacrifice of thanksgiving. To offer God thanksgiving means we understand that he is the provider and not ourselves. We're not adding to him or giving to him. We are responding to what he has given to us. We receive from God. And what have we received? Look at verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. So, We deserve judgment from God. He has summoned us to judgment, right? He summoned Israel to judge them. He summoned them to to judge them for their false views about him, for their false worship, which is as bad as any idolatry, to approach God with these, these blasphemous thoughts about God, that they are adding something or giving something to God. They deserve judgment for that. We deserve judgment for our false views about God. But then we come and find That the God who would be right to judge us forever calls us to call upon him. Call out to me when you're in trouble. Call out to me when you're under threat of judgment. And I will deliver you. God promises to deliver those who call out to him. And that is why we are thankful. Gratitude is at the heart of true worship. Gratitude is 
is the response to God's grace. Because God has poured out his grace on us, we respond with thanksgiving, with thankful hearts. In the gospel, we see God's giving most clearly, right? When we are saved, we confess we don't bring anything to that equation, right? The only thing we bring is our sin, right? Our rebellion, and, and that it deserves God's judgment. But in the gospel, God gives everything. Jesus, the Son of God, lays down his own life to save us. And out of the abundance of his righteousness and mercy, he pays the price that our sins deserve. So we should be paying a debt, but Jesus pays that debt for us. And then we find that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, how did he rise? You know, did, did a magician come and speak a spell over him? Did God have to make a bargain with the devil to let Jesus out of hell? Nothing like that is there, right? Jesus even proclaims that he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again because he is God. God raises himself. God raises Jesus. And so we see that salvation is from beginning to end. It's God's work. It's God's idea and God accomplishes it. And so what we see is the fact that God needs nothing leads to the very good news that our salvation does not depend on us. It's all because of God. We receive it as a gift by faith. We receive it with thankful hearts. So the gospel creates a thankful people. That's what God is trying to, to get his people to come to see. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your thankful thanksgiving. Because when I have your thanksgiving, I know that you've understood what you deserve and how much I've forgiven you. So are you thankful? I'm not asking you, are you, are you devoting 10 minutes a day to, to count your blessings? Are you thankful? Do you recognize that you deserve nothing from God but judgment? And do you see how God has given you everything in the gospel? Are you thankful for what you received from God? You know, the writer says that those who, who are thankful and who call out to God and receive salvation, they glorify God. I wonder if you caught that when we were doing our confession, how it says that, that we don't add any glory to God. My eyes aren't finding it right now. Now, God, is, God does not derive any glory from his creatures. So how is it that we glorify God? We're not adding to God something that he doesn't have. We glorify God by receiving the glorious salvation that he purchased in Christ. We glorify by, by believing. And that makes God glorious. Not because he's not glorious in and of himself, because it just, it just reflects his wonderful, saving love. How do you glorify God? By receiving with thanksgiving the salvation that he's purchased in Jesus Christ. And if you're not receiving with thanksgiving that salvation, you're not glorifying God. You're not living for the purpose that he created you for. You're outside of his will. And so I ask again, are you thankful? And one other implication of this is that those who know the God who has everything should also be prayerful. 
the question really is as simple as, do you pray? You know, those who think that they, they give something to God, those who think that they are the ones who add something to God, I don't think that they would have much reason to pray except for the occasional coming to the bargaining table, right? All right, God, I'm ready to get some more stuff from you. Can you give me this or that? But do you pray? Do you praise God for the gospel? Do you thank him for the gospel? Do you pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, Jesus has taught us to pray for our daily needs. So there's a way to pray and ask God for things that's, that's not transactional. But we pray because we know he is the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? We pray trusting him as a church that we don't have enough money to go buy a building today, but he could provide one. We all, we all pray that God would provide for our families knowing that, that he's the one who gives, right? So do you pray? Those who know the God who makes everything, who owns everything, who knows everything, they're prayerful people. So God charges the pious with a proud view of their own religious works. He charges them with thinking that somehow they can add something to God or bargain with him. But he makes it clear he needs nothing from us. If we are truly God's people, it's only because we've received everything from him. What we owe to him is the sacrifice of thanksgiving. So those are God's charges against the pious. Now let's turn to his charges against the hypocrites or, or the wicked as he calls them in verse 16. That's where we'll pick up the reading. But to the wicked, God says, what right of you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought, that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. At the beginning of the psalm, the Lord says he's no longer keeping silence. And so he's, he's reminding them here, up to this point, you have you've made assumptions about my silence. Is he still addressing his people Israel? But in this section, it seems he's turned to address those who are more comfortable in their sin. Notice he begins with some questions. He asks them, what right of you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? So these people, they still like to, to pay lip service to God's covenant and God's law. But then he says that through their actions, they show that they really hate these things, the covenant and the statutes. Notice he says in verse 17 that they hate his discipline. Now, part of the covenant relationship between God and Israel is that he would be a father to them and they would be his, his son. So he would discipline them when they, and then when they erred with a fatherly kind of discipline. But these people, they hate his discipline. So they, they like to talk about the covenant, but they don't want the, the blessing of the covenant a God who corrects them. Similarly with God's law, it says they love to talk about his statutes, but then they, we see how they 
are just ticking off things from the Ten Commandments, right? Adultery, theft, lying, right? They like to hang out with adulterers and, and thieves. They approve of them. And they themselves are liars. They're slanderers, speaking evil of their own kin. I wonder if Jesus has this in mind when he, when he talks about how hating another is murder in the Sermon on the Mount. So the, these people are, are slandering, they're hating their own brothers, their own family members, their mother's son. So they like to speak of God's statutes and God's covenant. They enjoy indulging in a good theological or legal debate. But then they break God's law and approve of those who sin. The summary of the indictment boils down to the middle part of verse 21. You thought that I was one like yourself. Isn't that interesting? Do we often think that God is like us? And even if we don't have that conscious thought, don't we sort of make God like us when we assume that he approves of what we do? They assumed that their hypocritical way of life was okay. That it was okay to be an Israelite and to discuss God's law and God's covenant and to approve of adultery and to approve of lying and to participate in it themselves. They were, they were involving God in their sin by saying this is an okay way to live as one of God's people. To put it in contemporary terms for us, we, they, they would be people who assumed it's, it's okay to be kind of a church-going person who just lives in unconfessed and unrepentant sin, who indulges in it and think that's an okay way to be a Christian. Are you ever guilty of, of justifying your own life in this way? Right? Notice that God draws attention to his relative silence. Right? They, they say, well, I haven't received any, any judgment from the Lord for this. Right? I haven't gotten a sign from heaven. I haven't gotten a message written in the clouds that what I'm doing is wrong. All the while, they're really ignoring his statutes and his covenant. They're casting his word behind them, it says. And so they think that because God hasn't given them some special sign from heaven, that they're okay. They interpret God's patience as approval. Are there any ways that you're doing the same? The fact that God is being patient with you, you're taking that to mean that everything you're doing is right. When in reality, what God is doing is he's, he's being patient with you to bring you to repentance, to lead you to confession of your sin, to humble you. Are you presuming on the patience of God? To those who would presume on his patience and his silence, the Lord has two things to say. The first of them is in verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. He wants those who would presume on his patience to shake with terror. This word, tear you apart, it's usually used to describe what lions do in the scriptures. So he wants us to think of ourselves when we presume on his patience as, as like being locked in a cage with a wild lion. We're in danger, right? 
He says, mark this. That's one of, the, one of the imperatives in this psalm. Mark this. Pay attention to this. If you presume upon my silence, you're putting yourself in danger. Danger that you might face me at any moment. Your life could end. And you will appear before me. A righteous judge. Mark this. He wants the people not to be comfortable in their sin. The Lord is saying, don't be content with any unconfessed or unrepentant sin. Don't give it an inch in your life. Judgment is coming. And God is a righteous judge. The heavens declare it. He is righteous. Now, in some ways, that's exactly what we'd expect from God, right? We expect the the fire and brimstone to be there, and it is. But what comes next? The second thing that God has to say to the wicked hypocrites is shocking in its goodness. Verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now, isn't that remarkable? It's the same thing he's already said in verses 14 and 15. So the Lord wants his people to hear him and to be arrested. He wants them to fear judgment. But he also wants them to repent. Notice the second half of that verse. To the one who orders his way rightly. All these folks that he's been talking about in this second half, they have not been ordering their way rightly, right? They've been approving of adultery and lying and stealing, right? They've been slandering, right? They've been the mocker of Psalm 1. And he's calling them to repent. Order your way rightly. Realize the way that you've strayed. Realize the ways that you've paid lip service to the gospel. Lip service to the law and the covenant. And return to me with thanksgiving. And I will show you salvation. God would confront them with judgment to bring them to a place where they can call on his name and receive salvation. To bring them to a place where they can respond with gratitude to his graciousness. God would show these wicked people his salvation. Remember, we talked about at the very beginning, God's light shining, his good, perfect light shining. Now God ends with wanting to show, to shine forth in salvation, even to these wicked hypocrites, inviting them to repent, inviting them to glorify him with an offering of thanksgiving. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. So this is a judgment psalm, but it's a judgment psalm that's meant to lead us to thanksgiving. It's a judgment psalm that holds out the hope to those who are under judgment. I can know the salvation of this good and perfect God, even though I deserve punishment. I deserve punishment for the way I've slandered and lied, for the way I've given approval to sin. I deserve the worst that God can throw at me. But by his grace, I can receive salvation. And we know that this salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, right? Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. He was cursed for sinners. This is no cheap grace. 
This is grace that comes at the price of Christ's life. In Christ, we see the light of the world, right? We see the the perfect and pure light of God shining forth as God the Son comes to take on flesh and take our sin upon himself. So if if you see yourself on that second category of people, you know how to talk a good game. You can talk the statutes and the covenant of God till the cows come home. But you know that secretly you've been giving approval to sin and indulging in sin. This message is for you. Turn from those things. Acknowledge the sinfulness of your sin and the goodness of God's ways and receive the forgiveness that Christ purchased for you. And that is how we go from being rebels to those with thankful hearts. This sermon and this psalm is all about judgment that leads to gratitude. I can't help but draw the connection to the Lord's Supper that Pastor Tim is about to lead us through. Right? In the Lord's Supper, we celebrate what is called the Eucharist. It's a Greek word that just means thanksgiving. And what do we meditate on in the Lord's Supper? We meditate on the judgment of God in Christ upon our sin. Judgment that leads to gratitude. Are you thankful? There's not a more fundamental question that you can ask and answer. Are you thankful? Can you go into this Thanksgiving week not looking for life hacks, but rejoicing in thanksgiving because Christ has paid for your sins? Let's pray. Our Father, we need help to to sit and meditate on who you are as a righteous judge. We, We are quick to run away from those thoughts. We're quick to try to distract ourselves with entertainment or or food or just scrolling through what's ever on our phone. Father, we pray you'll help us to sit with these realities that we need your righteous judgment. We need you to point out the the wrong ways we think about worshiping you, the proud ways we think that we have bargained with you or given you some good thing. We need your your judgment to point out the ways that we've indulged in sin and been hypocrites. But Father, we also need your help not to stay there, not to grovel in sin, but to turn from it, to repent, and to receive with thanksgiving the blessings you provide in Christ. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he did for us what we could not do for himself, for ourselves. Thank you that he is God himself, that he laid down his life and took it up again so that we have hope of life. It's in his name that we pray and thank you. Amen.